Welcome to the Change Management Review Podcast, where we bring the best of change management to you. In this From the Field episode, Managing Editor Brian Gorman talks with David Knorr about the interweave of personal, organizational, and social change, the role of innovation and how to achieve it, and the importance of nonlinear growth. We hope you enjoy this installment of the Change Management Review Podcast. Hello, I'm Brian Gorman, Managing Editor of Change Management Review, and our guest on today's podcast is David Noor, CEO of the Noor Group. David is a Senior Leadership Board Advisor, Researcher, Executive Educator, and Best-Selling Author. He is internationally recognized as the leading expert on applications of strategic relationships and profitable growth, sustained innovation, and lasting change. David is the author of 10 books, the most recent being Curvebenders, and Curvebenders is going to be the focus of our conversation this morning. Nor serves as a trusted advisor to global clients and coaches corporate leaders. And welcome, Nor. Brian, it's good to be with you. So let's begin with what will be the first question for most people. What is a curve bender? Sure. So it's a, at its simplest terms, it, it's a really a strategic relationship that, Brian, has a profound impact on both our direction and our destination. And the best way for me to describe this is think of us for you and your audience, think of a stair step. The first step is a contact. You and I meet someone at a, at a you know, pre-pandemic events, or you kind of interact with somebody. As you exchange value, and the value is not just perceived, but it's received, they become a relationship. I believe continuation of that value exchange elevates them to a different level. And in many ways, they become a strategic relationship. In the book before this one that I wrote, at a certain level, those strategic relationships, you really go after a new market opportunity or a new uh, approach to innovation or a new way of solving a problem that, that previously hadn't been uh, discovered. And I, and I call those co-creators. The next step from there, again, certain relationships that beyond any transaction, they're profound in the transformation capability in our lives. And they change, they, they, they dramatically change not just what we do, but in many ways who we become, in many ways where we go, how we land, how we show up. Uh, and, and a perfect example is think about, you know, in your career journey, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, maybe that college professor, maybe that first manager that took you under his or her wings, maybe people that were formal or informal coaches and mentors, but beyond a sliver of your life, they really gave you a new glimpse into a very different direction in your life. And, and those people change your trajectory and hence I call them curve benders. Great, thank you. I can think of a few, absolutely. But that college professor was more than 30 years ago. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that I found fascinating in reading curve benders was that you are constantly weaving the personal with the organizational and even sometimes into the, the societal um, realms. That's really unusual. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we often talk a lot about 
And, and, and full disclosure, my passion, my focus has always been business relationships, right? I don't give anybody dating advice, right? <laughs> so we do often think about our, our, our business relationships. Yet what I've found over time is as these business relationships mature and they broaden our horizon, they broaden our portfolio, our purview, they also shed a light in not just what we do, but who we are. And Brian, how we show up and how we engage and influence others. And I equated to that, that manager that not only took you and me under his or wings and taught us a product or service or market, but I, but I love, and I often talk about curve vendors as those that teach us how to be an empathetic leader. They teach us that, that, that servant leadership isn't just a fancy term. It's how we show up and how we take care of others. And I've long believed, if you want to read more, God bless you. If you want to become a better person, that's fantastic. Good for you. If you want to get almost anything else done, we need others. And, and I got to tell you, I'm disheartened by the fact that we're losing in many ways our ability for civil discourse. We're losing our ability to argue productively or debate different facets of, of, a, of something we believe in and we're passionate about. And, and I posted on LinkedIn recently a, a brilliant Heineken ad where it demonstrates through this experiment they run, we have a lot more in common than we think we do. But because we have some preconceived notions about others, it, it, it kind of blocks us from really getting to know them. So I talk a lot about business relationships really also shaping the manager, the leader that we become. Uh, how we engage, how we influence others, what leadership brands we build. So just a very quick story for you. Uh, as I was writing uh, Curve and your audience, as I was writing Curve Benders, often talked about, um, you know, these people that could, that could dramatically, profoundly ch change our direction, change our future. And, and you know, my, several of my own Curve Benders said, that's fantastic. Love the bridge and the path you're building to how to find and identify these people. One of them over dinner, I distinctly remember it was like it was yesterday. He said, you know what will be a more profound question? How can we become Curve Benders in the lives of others? How can you take others and, and dramatically impact their lives such that 20 years from now, 30 years from now, they remember you and they remember the impact that you had in, in their lives? So I think we all have work to do in judging less, empathizing more, and really taking the impact of our business relationships into the communities, into the society. We're lucky to serve. We're lucky to live in. And in the book, you do, in fact, address that how to become a curve bender in some mm -hmm. detail. One of the things that fascinated me as I was going through the book and I had made a note and several chapters later, I wanted to reread the, the, that particular section. And so I, I ran a search because I, I was reading it on Kindle and the, the key word in my note was questions. And it just blew me away how many times you talk about asking questions. Mm. Yeah, I, I uh, again, philosophically, I've long believed great relationships come from great conversations. 
and great conversations come from great questions. So particularly the more seasoned we become, it's very easy for all of us to give others the answers. You ask me a question, here you go, here's the answer. <laughs> in, in a lot of my coaching of, of frontline contributors to senior executives, I'm a huge proponent of convey your credibility through the questions you ask, not necessarily trying to prove how smart you are. And if you consistently, I'm, I'm not advocating don't ever give people answers, but the days of any of us having all the answers are long gone. And my dad drove into me, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. So how do you engage others in a meaningful conversation where not only you learn, by the way, I, I can't learn when I'm speaking. I can't listen and hear and internalize and synthesize when I'm articulating. So how can I learn more? How can I provoke others in a positive, constructive way to think about that subject, that topic, that issue, that talent agenda, that strategy, that direction a little differently through the questions I ask? So I'm a, I'm a huge believer of better questions, more compelling questions, more thoughtful questions, more insightful questions as an enormous enabler of great conversations and great relationships. There are two things that come to my mind um, from, from that last piece of wisdom that you shared, Noor. Um, but let me pursue them one at a time. One is just um, an observation, if you will. A few years ago, the Human Capital Institute and International Coach Federation did research on the impact that coaching has in organizational change management. And the, the evidence was clear that coaching is much more effective than, for example, classroom training and, and so forth. Um, the, in fact, the, the evidence was strong enough that the International Coach Federation and the Association of Change Management Professionals are now um, looking at the, the intersection of the two professions. And um, coaching is becoming a, an additional tool for change management practitioners. Um, the other thing that, that comes to mind is I was fortunate years ago to take a class with Judith E. Glasser, uh, whose work, Conversational Intelligence, really focused on the neuroscience of conversation. And Judith talked about three levels of conversation. There's the transactional, um, you know, my name's Brian, your name's Noor, you know, what did you have for breakfast kind of thing. There's the positional, which is that, you know, let me tell you how to do this right kind of conversation. And then there's the transformational or co-creational. And, and that's exactly what I hear you talking about here. Uh, you, you're, I'm sorry, you're exactly right. And, and they all have, I think, different uh, value in different stages or, or continuum of the relationship mm -hmm. and, and timing. The other thing is timing, right? Have you ever noticed you, you meet someone and like too much, too fast? And you're like, dude, whoa, back up. We just met, right? <laughs> Take it easy. And, and conversely, if you're too distant, 
People perceive you to be cold or indifferent. So sociologists call that being ambient aware and having this natural give and take. And, and I'm amazed of how the good Lord gave all of us prudent judgment and yet how, you know, how few people actually use it. Uh, but it's, you're exactly right in that each of those conversations have a, a, a very natural progression as we build and nurture and hopefully sustain a relationship over time. Nor clearly in the book, Curve Benders, you talk about innovation. Why is innovation as opposed to incremental improvement so important to organizations today? One word comes to mind and it's, it's really relevancy. And, and, and again, um, innovation and disruption, Brian is sexy and cool and jazzy to talk about. It is really difficult. Uh, so what I often talk to leaders about and organizations about is really, again, a stair step. I, I, I like crawl before you walk, before you run. So I often talk about iteration as doing the same thing better. And if you build a culture that doesn't accept status quo, doesn't spend a lot of energy defending status quo, but is, is always challenging it, improving it, modifying it. Those are all examples of iteration. How do we do the same thing we're doing today better? Do enough iteration and good chance you're going to stumble into innovation, which is how do we do new things? If you build a culture of experimentation, if you build a culture that's unafraid of retribution and is willing to take prudent risk, don't, don't bet the company's survival on, on these things, but take prudent risk, then you're much more likely to uncover opportunities for disruption, which is doing new things that makes the old obsolete. So if an organization if it's leaders, don't just embrace change and innovation intellectually, but really find pragmatic opportunities to implement, much more importantly, make those changes last. I struggle to see how they're going to remain relevant. When was the last time you used the Kodak digital, you know, the Kodak film camera or any kind of film, physical film for that matter? You know, you've been to a Blockbuster video store lately. How about a, a you know, BlackBerry device? I, I used to do this. I would, I would, you know, years ago, I'd raise my, you know, how many, how many of you in the room use a BlackBerry? Several years ago, how many use a BlackBerry? Great. Uh, if you still do, we'll hug. I'm a hugger. Let's, let's hug later because um, you know, I just, and, and what happens is, is they didn't continue to innovate. They, they didn't remain relevant. And by the way, it leads me to this, um, this pandemic, I, I have to tell you, uh, I, I cringe when I hear people talk about their, their annual strategic planning because strategy is not a calendar-driven anything. It's a chance to look at the market and the market opportunities with a whole new lens and a fresh perspective and really figure out what's our best possible choices for best possible outcomes. That's the definition I got from A.G. Laffley of Procter and Gamble fame. And beyond the lives and the livelihoods of this pandemic, what an amazing impetus to rethink, reimagine, reinvent work. I've got clients who are, who are 
experimenting with four day work weeks. You're going to work, if you're going to work 40 hours anyway, why not do it 10 hours a day times four? And really give people that, that Friday for their mental health, for their well being. And they actually are piloting this with a couple of different groups to, and geographies to see if that is sustainable and that can become a more of a lasting change. I've got others that are working on flexible hours or what they all encompass. Pre-pandemic, we would try to shove talent into our predetermined packages. What the pandemic drove was an incredible global introspection of, I don't want to go back to the grind. I don't want to be on the road 200 days a year. I don't want to go into an office. If I'm a knowledge worker, all I really need is internet access. So now the astute companies are creating packages to meet the talent. And that's an example of visionary thinking that says, if we don't innovate, if we don't evolve, we're going to struggle to remain relevant. You identify six barriers to innovation. For those of us who are change leaders, change practitioners supporting those leaders, Several of these sound very familiar. Um, you talk about conflicting vision and direction, uh, cultural inhibition for innovation, resistance to change, misaligned initiatives, uh, audiences or what we in the change management profession call stakeholders who can't understand what this change is about and being unclear as to our why. Um, all of those are are barriers that um, those of us who are in the change field are very familiar with. How do you work with your clients to move past those, some of those barriers? You know, um, the, the completely non-politically correct phrase right about now would be dinosaur leadership. And let me just give you and your audience an example. Uh, some, of, some of your listeners may know this, some may not. Do you know where the, the current org structure comes from? Yeah, World War I. Command and control is a military term, and the boxes and the hierarchy and all that comes from that, or, that era. I don't know about you. I don't know of any other part of my life that I'm still using from World War I. So if... That leader that I'm, I'm blessed, I'm lucky to get introduced to, and, and, and I'm, a lot of my work comes from referrals and introductions by past relationships, past clients. One, one CEO's hired me in four different jobs. I'm like, what? You can't keep a job? But he actually is, is really good, and he exits, and he, and he moves on to other, other opportunities. And we've worked together several times. And Brian, in, in full disclosure, I, I, what I look for in every executive I work with is what I call the three C's. Number one is courage, courage to think and lead differently, courage to challenge the status quo, courage to build a culture of experimentation that I mentioned, culture, uh, courage to not just talk about change as a checklist, but change as an enabler of creating enterprise value. If you bring courage, the second seed you have to have is commitment. Real change and innovation 
is not really likely to impact your quarter numbers this quarter. <laughs> it's not a short-term Band-Aid. I, I'm just, I'm not interested in putting Band-Aids on things that need surgery. So the commitment has to be in the long tail value creation, in the long tail evolution of the organization. And, and that includes elevating the talent. That includes elevating the processes and all the things that you and your community know exceptionally well. If they bring the first two Cs, courage and commitment, I'll bring the third, which is a construct. And I believe you need a construct. You need a roadmap. You need a, a you know, most everybody knows where Everest is. A lot of people know how to get there, but you know what? They still use a Sherpa. Because the Sherpa knows where to store the oxygen. The Sherpa knows when to ascend and when not to. That's the role I enjoy playing is come alongside visionary leaders who want to see real, lasting change, evolve the organization, keep them relevant, and accelerate that enterprise value creation. I actually use as my model um, for working with my clients um, a version of Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey that I've developed over the years. Um, and as I tell my clients, they are the heroes. I'm a Sherpa. Yeah, I, I often remind, I remind people that, you know, uh, Luke Skywalker can't become a Jedi without Obi-Wan. If he could you know, somebody's in the wrong movie. Uh, and if, and if you're, if you're a student of the hero's journey, there's, there's a hero and there's a guide. I, I, I always want my clients, I always want those incredible CEOs and executives I work with to be the hero of the story. My job is to be Yoda. My job is to be that guide and guide them hopefully with unique insights, hopefully with an independent perspective. Brian, I got to tell you, the, the biggest thing I enjoy about what I do is that I don't, I don't have a dog in the fight. I'm not after anybody's job. I don't, people like you and I can be that, be on the front row, but still be independent enough to, and, and I, I tell my clients, you're either going to love my candor or you're going to hate my candor. But you're surrounded by way too many people who want to please, good people, good intentions. They want to please, so they'll tell you, yes, yes, yes. $10 million later, and this project's going to go off a cliff, and everybody's a Monday morning quarterback. I, I, I could have told you that was going to fail six months ago. Then why didn't you? Whereas I ask, again, not tell, because I, they, they'll forget more about their business in five minutes than I'll ever learn. So my job isn't to tell. My job is to ask, is there a better way? Or what are you thinking about this? Or why do you believe that's important? And if I challenge their assertions and their assumptions. It often leads to really interesting conversations. Hopefully some they haven't thought of. Hopefully we can de-risk that effort, that initiative, that investment, and, and create a better outcome that they're after. And, and again, a, a quick analogy I use is everybody's very good at, if they do any kind of a post-mortem, could have, should have, would have, right? Here's Here's what we could have done differently. Here's what we should have done differently. Here's 75 ways we learned from this. And I'm a big believer. I'm a big fan of pre-mortems. Why don't we get everybody, you know, the right key stakeholders in a room 
and shoot all the possible holes at this initiative, at this effort, at this change management campaign, at this whatever it is we're about to embark on. And let's de-risk it up front. And let's answer, take a few minutes more or, or a few days or weeks or whatever more we need up front to really think through where we're going, how we're going to get there. Not just what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. What relationships do we need to accelerate our ability to, to get to that destination? And, and again, way too many executives I find are surrounded by people who are protecting their own turf and their own kind of agenda and their own needs and their own uh, Wednesday night bowling leagues versus is this really going to create impact in the organization? Um, I recently described um, resilience to someone as elasticity. How do we better prepare in advance? How do we apologize for description, but embrace the suck and just get through it and be stronger because of it on the other side. That's what it takes. That's what real change, as you and your audience know, is about, is a very different, a dramatically better condition on the other side of it than where we are today. And if we don't do that, how will we remain relevant? You talk a lot about nonlinear growth. Why is nonlinear growth important for businesses in today's world? Yeah, that's that's uh, that's one of those aha moments that that our research led me to, which is, if you think about this pandemic, it it provided a whole lot of uncertainty. First, it was demand. Subsequently, it's been supply, and in the face of uncertainty, the only way for us to remain relevant is this continuous personal professional learning and growth. Most people, if they learn at all, it's a steady as she goes, 45 degree truck ramp, right? Learn, 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 maybe at some point in the future apply. And the best example that comes to mind is all of our undergraduate degrees, right? I don't know when was the last time you visited differential calculus. It's been a while for me, right? But you know what? We struggled through it and we learned and we kind of got that piece of paper. I didn't learn the first time I had to take it twice. <laughs> yeah. Some of us, you know, need to take it several times. But <laughs> so in this face of, in this dynamic market, in the face of constant disruption, and, and you were kind enough to read Curve Vendors, you know that the entire chapter two is on 15 forces that our research shows will dramatically disrupt not just the way we work, but the way we live, the way we play, the way we give to others in the next decade. So in the face of this constant disruption, that truck ramp will no longer suffice. Nonlinear growth is all about the hockey stick. So I don't need a four-year degree from MIT. I just need to learn how to code. So can I go to Khan Academy? Can I go somewhere where I can quickly learn 30 days? learn something quickly, apply it to solve a fundamental challenge or address a market opportunity, learn from that, learn the next thing. And if I daisy chain these things together, it truly becomes that hockey stick ramp. And not only do I remain relevant, but I'm applying those learnings at an accelerated pace and I'm building on that learning. 
And, and in a market, and, I'm, and I gotta tell you, I have this argument with the headmaster at our kid's school. Our education system is also another one that is just woefully inadequate. Um, much less developed countries are graduating more honor students than we graduate students. They're graduating kids from universities that speak multiple languages. We graduate really talented athletes that can't read and write. And that is going to come back and bite us if we don't. And, and, and don't get me started on the bureaucracy in academia. Um, I'm not sure some of them would know what change is if it was water and it fell out of a boat. But if we don't embrace this idea of nonlinear growth, we're really going to struggle uh, in, in, again, I, I keep going back to that relevance. It's not a one-time event. It's, it's an ongoing battle and it's an ongoing investment in that personal professional growth. Nor you remind me of a, uh, an interview I listened to just a few years ago, um, was on talk radio was a, um, the guest was a uh, Gen Z who had just graduated from high school and he and his father had started a Gen Z consulting firm. And the interviewer said, why aren't you going to college? And he said, because today I can learn what I need to know when I need to know it. And I don't have to spend a lot of time learning what other people think is important to me. And, and, I, and, I, and I did, I researched our education system. And again, uh, you know, going back to like 1800s uh, and it's the manufacturing process of let's take very diverse, cognitively diverse kids who learn very differently, who are drawn to different things and shove them all in the exact same manufacturing process because it's the path of least resistance. And I'm a big Mike Rowe fan, and he's a big proponent of four-year college isn't for every kid. By the way, plumbers and welders are making over 100K a year right now. And we're going to need a lot of them moving forward. And a lot of these trades are, are struggling with what they call the silver tsunami, which is an aging just deep domain expertise, deep knowledge, retiring, and not enough apprentices coming in, not enough backfill of these incredible talents. One of my clients is a manufacturer of elevators and escalators, and not enough people are getting into that world. And if you've ever been in an airport with the elevator escalators down, it's, a, it's, a, it's an inconvenience. Going to a hospital now it's a matter of life and death. If I can't get that patient from emergency department to the OR, we've got issues. And no technology is going to be able to fix that. Certainly not at the moment. So yeah, it, it's our education system, especially as one of the most powerful countries in the world, desperately needs that visionary leadership. Desperate. Administrate, and this is not a political statement, but administration after administration comes in and they just put band-aids or they keep kicking the can down the road or they come up with clever taglines that have no real impact. And we're doing a disservice to our kids at every level. I'm arguing with one of my alma maters that will go unnamed 
that they're graduating these kids with a really expensive degree and they don't know anything about business relationships. They're not teaching them this in undergrads. They sure as hell aren't teaching them this in grad school. So how are we expecting them to understand that beyond their academic prowess, beyond their professional pedigree, their portfolio of relationships is a huge enabler of any kind of change and any kind of impact and any kind of outcome. And we're doing these kids a disservice by not teaching them the things that we all believe and we intellectually understand absolutely sets us apart from our peers. We need to wrap this up. What would be the last message, at least for now, um, that you'd want to pass on to change management with you uh, listeners? Let me, let me uh, do that in, uh, in threes. Number one, be, as I said earlier, beyond your academic kind of foundation, beyond your professional pedigree, I would submit your biggest asset is your portfolio of relationships. So how proactively, how intently, how strategically are you nurturing? Are you sustaining them? That's number one. Number two, you can never, ever stop learning and growing. The day you stop learning and growing is the day you become complacent. And that's the day you're no longer valuable to your biggest asset, which is your portfolio of relationships. And if you look at relationships as a long-term investment, as a long-term asset, curve benders, co-creators, strategic relationships, all have a profound impact in not just where you want to go, your journey from now to next, but the person, the leader, the husband, the father, the brother, the decent human being that we all aspire to become. Noor, thank you so much. Uh, Brian, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We hope you've enjoyed this From the Field episode of the Change Management Review podcast with Brian Gorman, Managing Editor of the Change Management Review, and David Knorr. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and like us on LinkedIn.